0: Welcome to this episode of Threading Thoughts, where we talk about public policy, gig economy and women's rights. Until recently in India, the public policy has been regarded as a field of study that is meant only to those in government who make decisions that affect people or the public at large. Right from gig economy workers to corporate functioning, an urgent need is to cause the furthering of policy understanding and engagement amongst ordinary citizens. The focus of public policy studies has been on different social and political problems which have multiple facets and ramifications that require insights from almost all the social science disciplines. However, policies that have positive consequences benefiting a larger number of people need not necessarily be the right ones if they violate fundamental rights of other individuals as guaranteed in the Constitution of India. Public policy much too important to be left to policymakers alone needs an informed public in order to guarantee that public policies genuinely serve public interest Bhuvana is the co-founder and director of Thryas a knowledge driven public purpose enterprise she is the lead author of the state of discrimination report that identifies and analyzes legally sanctioned Sex discrimination across states. She has 16 plus years experience in public policy research and has worked extensively alongside government and civil society partners on creating an enabling environment for enterprises, regulatory simplification, and reforming welfare programs. She is a former director of research at the Centre for Civil Society, one of India's leading think tanks. She led the thinking and execution of multiple high visibility research publications including 100 Laws for Repeal, Doing Business in Delhi, Anatomy of K-12 Governance, Playbook for Reforming Indian Agriculture, and Regulation for New Realities. She has published several opinion articles on domestic policy in leading Pink Papers. In her roles with the British Governor's Department for International Development and MIT's Poverty Action Lab, she has worked with state governments of Odisha, Madhya Pradesh, and Punjab. Bhuvana is member of the Game Ease of Doing Business Task Force that works to transform the operating environment for small enterprises in select states. Prior to returning to India in 2010, Bhuvana worked in development consulting with Deloitte's Emerging Markets Group, now Cardinal Emerging Markets, and the United Nations. Bhuvana graduated with a bachelor's in economics from St. Xavier's in Bombay and a master's from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Where she specialized in developmental economics. Um, welcome to this episode of Threading Thoughts. I am so excited to have uh, Bhuvana with us and a multifaceted personality with uh, different diverse interests, but somehow tying all these uh, different topics together to give a very cohesive uh, argument, picture and a discussion. Um, and we are so happy that you joined us and uh, I'm really glad. So thank you so much, Bhuvana.
1: My pleasure, Mridula. What? Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's always nice to connect with new people. Out of nowhere, we uh, connected and had such a great conversation. So I'm looking forward to this uh, discussion.
0: Absolutely wonderful. Um, so Bhuvana, let me sort of jump in directly into, uh, you know, a few thoughts or questions that we had. Um, and I think it's broadly based on some of the work that you've been doing as well. So, um, you know, the percentage of women in the workforce uh, has decreased steadily in the last few years. COVID, of course, has not helped at all. Um, And uh, all this promise of work from home or the flexibility that comes with it uh, seems to be distant promises at best. So, you know, how are the laws skewed against a fair work environment? I mean, we're looking at uh, a general environment or a support system, but we also are looking at laws that are set sort of not in stone, but perhaps in paper and how are what are your thoughts about that?
1: Sure, thank you. Um, So recently, I mean, this is a packed question, right, like women in the workforce, there are so many things that are going on and so many good people working on all of the different elements that uh, that are affecting this. Uh, The big question is India's women are not enthusiastically in the workforce, right? Uh, I'm not sure that declining is the right word, but it's not commensurate with the size, proportion, as well as if you put men in the workforce, right? So something is definitely going on and it uh, appears that uh, it isn't correcting. So, you know, there's clearly deeper set of malaise that are going on. So there are explanations on the supply side, women are, are burdened with housework or the culture is not allowing for it or that the family income dynamics are such that uh, because enough money is coming in to run the family, women are not required to, in that sense. That being said, uh, it doesn't pass the smell test to me, at least, that uh, such a diverse country with so many shades, and yet you're finding this standard pattern. Like Something is also off, something right? Is yeah. Off. Something is off, right? uh and one of the areas that we uh, at Trias, when we started to think about women so we are women founded organization and a bulk of our, our team is also uh, uh those who recognize themselves as women and so the the uh, and so it was natural for us to pick up the question of uh you know sort of sex in, in insofar as our discussions go or our areas of investigation go. and one thing that we had noticed as part of our work on labor laws is that the laws seem to treat women differently uh, than men Uh, Mm. and this sort of bothers us just in principle, right? So we said, oh, well, maybe it's just one off. Why don't we do a systematic investigation into this question? So then we narrowed our research question. We said, uh, women job seekers or female job seekers, how does the law treat them at least insofar as choosing to enter the workforce. So, we're not talking about all the ways in which you could enhance their participation or provide uh, additional benefits. We're not looking at any of those things. We're just saying, at entry, assuming men and women, well, purportedly are equal, does the law treat them differently? And what are all the laws across India's states? And so, then broadly, we started to catalog and say, can we rank states in the extent to which they discriminate against women? And uh, I'm really proud of our sort of first report on this right state of discrimination report, where we count and catalogue every single instance of legally sanctioned discrimination against women entering the job force, right. So every labour law rules across states, uh, notifications, orders, uh, in some cases, um, not just limiting ourselves to labour laws in that sense, but other laws also, Correct. for example, spice laws, for example, Uh, public decency related laws uh, and so on and so forth, right? And what we find is there is a pattern and the pattern is that there are four things that the state does uh, that may hinder an employer's ability to enthusiastically welcome women into the job force, right? Or uh, for that matter uh, affects the number of jobs that are then easily available to women, right? Uh, And these are uh, the ability of women to work in the night shift or to work at night hours Uh, The second is to work in jobs that are deemed hazardous, Mm. uh, jobs that are deemed arduous and in jobs that are deemed morally uh, objectionable or morally inappropriate, right? Um, And we find that this is true across the world, across all of the states and it it happens in different ways, right? Uh, It happens either there are blanket restrictions and nothing doing not allowed at all or it happens by saying. Well, we recognize, for example, in the IT industry that there is a round-the-clock operation right. and we recognize how important this is to the sector. So we will carve out a little exception, for it, right? And that exception will begin by saying, you've come to us, we'll give you a permission. So hmm. case by case by case by case permission. Or then some other states will have matured a little bit more and then said, well, does it make sense for 100 companies for us to be doing all this paperwork, just this simple thing? And so we'll start collating a list of conditions. And then based on if you say you are following the conditions, we'll let you go ahead. Once in a way, we may inspect the conditions. And the last, of course, is moving and saying we have no restrictions, right? So broadly speaking, this is sort of the spectrum that that, that uh, uh, comes about. And so we went and studied every single instance. And we have and so our, uh, uh, our uh, uh, posit is that across India, there is a low hanging fruit. Uh, which is to uh, re look, revisit systematically all of um, the provisions that discriminate against women uh, or that uh, restrict or prohibit women from entering the job force. So I'm going to be very precise about it. Right? Um, and my sense is there are two things. One is the instrumentalist reason. Why would you block 50% of your population? You, block, you know, 51%, I think. Why would you do that? Um, it makes no sense to. Uh, you know, sort of create that kind of self-goal for yourself, right? Irrespective of whether women choose to go into the workforce or not, why would you block them from exercising that choice, right? Why would you block employers from treating them equally in some sense uh, with with their male counterparts? The second is on principle, Hmm. which is that the constitution seems to say that hey, there is equality. The court, women have gone to courts time and time again and said, protested these restrictions courts have taken 50 50 sometimes they they they've understood the problem but they've also been uh, you know sort of reluctant in some ways to step into the domain of the uh, legislature of the executive and say nothing doing this is absolutely no. right and principally it seems to us that something is not right about this why would we cage women on mass <coughs> so i think that's broadly our um, our take on women in the workforce: We think there are things that we can do very quickly, uh, and we must do it uh, as a matter of you know, sort of urgency. How much of a change will that bring to workforce? It's hard to say because there are so many things going. on. At the very least, we can at least say that on principle we've cleaned, uh, we've, we've presented women with an equal
0: entry point. We've not erected entry barriers. But you know, this is very pertinent. Uh, When you say entry barriers, honestly speaking, I think the problem lies elsewhere. So for example, when you're looking at uh, safety of women, um, it's almost as if the women, you know, have to be held uh, responsible for their safety, somebody has to come and take care of them. But the environment is not safe enough for the woman to enter. So you know, the the problem lies somewhere else. Uh, But the solution seems to be in restricting women Getting into that environment seems a little topsy turvy, um, but you know, because the women are not creating that environment of uh, being unsafe for themselves, right?
1: Exactly, Uh, right? I mean, think about how absurd it would be to say that by and large, uh, most of the sexual assaults, which is the thing that we are most scared about, right, on women, are perpetrated by men. Now, wouldn't the answer be let's not allow men to work in the night? It seems to me that that's the logical thing, right? Like let's put them in barricades because women are not out there creating
0: troubles. For them. Exactly. I mean, they, they are not attacking Talking others and them. yeah. So uh, it seems to be so topsy-turvy in the solution that has been presented rather than fix the actual issue, we are, uh, you know, targeting the symptoms. Uh, but also that the other way, uh, the other part of it is that how long will you continue
1: this for? Hmm. Right? and maybe the fact that women being out there is also an incentive for solutions to emerge on the law or to make that story a lot less uh, you know sort of uh, or, or to help alleviate some of those problems impetus uh, to solve it, right
0: who knows uh, like it's hard to tell. It's also a question of comfort or talking right I think a lot of topics or a lot of issues uh, that nowadays seem to be uh, more comfortably discussed and you know viewed correctly uh, were completely taboo maybe uh, 10 to 15 Ah. years ago. So bringing Ah. it out right, bringing out into the open has actually brought better discussions or better understanding. So closeting women inside is not going to help keep them safe. They're unsafe wherever they are if their mindset is not changed.
1: Absolutely, they're unsafe wherever they are. Now you're just, they're also jobless, they have no independence, they have no economic income source possibly and so
0: on and so forth. absolutely I mean that's that's very well put and and it's amazing to see that there are so many different uh laws that have come into place or you know these guidelines that have come into place that actually don't help uh women at work but they're they're so subtle right it's not like um, out there and in your face but they're just these small subtle ways in which it it uh, completely defeats the purpose of where we want to be um so yes. that was that, that i thought was really well put across as well um but you know there's another sector i think perhaps um, uh, another sector where women also want to come up but it, it's already a tough uh world and uh, i think you know you already start with a back foot uh, when you're coming in so the informal work sector right which is deeply mired in regulations and perhaps also called unproductive most times are the MSMEs. Right, um, So I just wanted to know your thoughts on it and where exactly we can work towards uh, more viable solutions especially women as well.
1: That's a tough question. I'm going to unpack the two and say Absolutely.
0: Building,
1: not peculiar but the, the MSN. Sector MSN
0: itself the I agree.
1: Sector itself more broadly right. It's true. Most of India's enterprises are dwarfs uh, the economic survey a few years ago documented impact and uh, uh, from faculty of the uh, um, uh, of ISP was also the chief economic advisor so in the economic surveys they consistently pointed this out right? that we do have a problem of dwarfism. that India's enterprises are really tiny and that's okay to be tiny but they're not growing, they don't <sighs> grow past the size. so what's going on and we, uh, in some sense uh, we've got to be able to change that not that every enterprise should be a giant enterprise but at least there should be a pathway to it. Uh, so, you should see a spread so you see enterprises that are tiny and then you see a few enterprises that are gigantic and there is a missing middle something i don't think of these enterprises as being unproductive i think of them as being low productivity which is basically that they could be doing far better and earning much better returns uh, and perhaps improving the quality of the products and services that they are trying to offer and uh, doing better by their workforce and so on and so forth right But something is going on that is preventing them from doing so, so what is that? I I do think that regulations there have a massive role to play. And one way of thinking about this is that uh, we've often in India chased standards that we think around the world, right? Um, uh, So we think best practice, global best practice, we think that's a great uh, idea. It's actually a terrible idea for us. We're a tiny, piddly economy, we're massively poor. Uh, you have to have context appropriate standards. Sure, it may seem to us that why, you know, why should some, uh, uh, um, you know, we want to have X type of rain harvesting or Y type of uh, uh, setback areas for a building or these kind of safety proto- fire safety protocols, or we may want to give six-month maternity leave for women and so on and so on. Fresh facilities, uh, we've got to think a little bit. Can a small enterprise ever fulfill these Mirad conditions? If not, then who are we fooling? Mm. The point of this, right? Neither the guy is just going to either cheat and uh, you know get the certification, but he's going to get by cheating. He's not going to be able. Forget about him being evil. Think about it from the point of view of being able to. Today, I am. uh, I co-run a small enterprise, right? Can I do it? Can I bring in? uh, You know, sort of. Is it possible for me today to offer maternity benefits of six months? No I, no, I am a 12-person workforce. I cannot afford six months of salary of somebody saloon. And I know that sounds harsh and cruel and horrible. But at the same time, just think in an empathetic way. Is that even possible? Correct. So understand. all you're doing is encouraging me to cheat, right? And on top of it, think about the government. Do we have the ability to monitor ch- crashes everywhere? Do we have the ability to monitor drinking water facilities or any? All of these are nice to have. I'm not denying those at all I'm just okay. saying to you that putting it in regulation is a self code You have got to have context-appropriate standards for this country, for different parts of this country given our poverty level, given our income per capita and our state capacity. And so I do think that across the board we have gone a bit crazy on regulation and we have a massive amount of rationalization of regulation. This is not easy to do. So there are a bunch of things that are happening, uh, union-led also at the state-led, the reducing compliance burden stuff, the ease of doing business stuff. My sense is we've got to be a lot more systematic about it, right? And just in the last two years, the work that we've been doing, it's back-breaking to introduce the corrections and the revisions that are required. You have to go law by law, rule by rule, you know, strike, correct, strike, correct. And you have to do it within the ambit of democracy, which is a wonderful thing, but it's a hard thing to do, right? And so, in some sense, you want to think about MSMEs and uh, 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 you know, sort of the informal sector that we think about. And informal is not a sector; it's just those guys who have chosen not to follow the rules because they cannot follow the rules. Your rules are absurd, and the market is telling you that your rules are absurd. And what you've done instead is to make them either evil or stupid. They're not evil, nor are they stupid. Right? Uh, they're just reacting to what you've put on the. Right. Uh, so, if we were to think about it that way, then maybe our approach to regulation would change uh, dramatically as well. Well, at least that's my hope and, hope.
0: <laughs> and I think that's a good hope to have, uh, because as you said, I think it's it's impossible for uh, small firms, uh, literally clawing their way up, right? Uh, to to actually compete with large firms which have that kind of a muscle power. So unless the the support system is given, you are sort of setting them up to already fail or, as you say, force them to look at ways which might not be the best ways possible. Uh, It's a a question of survival ultimately. It's a question of actually the output that you need to do. And it's a question of a competition uh, with maybe even bigger firms who are doing in the same sector. So I think a lot more thought has to go into this but um, um, is there a lot of voice coming out for this or is there enough um, reasoning going on? And there always has been right? So
1: this is part of the uh, there are lots of folks who have recognized this. We're not the first to recognize this for 60 years, 75 years ago.
0: Absolutely. Somebody
1: right in the second five year plan where there was a motive present all the way to now. There are voices that have recognized and pointed out that the model of state that we have chosen is not correct for us and it is holding us back. Right? This is not new. That being said, I do think in the last eight, ten years there has been a bigger momentum both at the central level and the state level to make a change. Ah. And there are many folks who are trying to help in different ways make those corrections. Um, I do think that one of the challenges is that uh, we think this can be corrected by a struggle. And that, I think, is a mistake. There are no low hanging fruit. Uh, I remember using the term low hanging fruit in the state of this family. It's relative. What I mean is there is an obvious minimum that you can correct it. Correct it to go through 150 laws across 23 different states and make those corrections is a 5-year story or a 10-year story. Absolutely. Conservatively speaking, right? Because it is democracy. You've got to take consultation back. There will be a uh, somebody who will have a different point of view, so on and so forth, right? And there is a legislator, there is a legislative sector, there are four. So it's, it's not. A, uh, I don't think it is. Uh, I, I think it's neither feasible to have that as a whole post, uh, nor is it desirable. Itself, right? Do it incrementally. Do it slowly. Follow process and build for the long, long term.
0: I mean, you've mentioned that it's already been there in fire year plan. So obviously, this is such a long term thinking that's going on. Um, and it has not
1: been there in five year plans. Huh. There have been from the second five year plan. Numbers, there have been dissents. Correct. This is not the right way right. to so Right.
0: So at least there have been a lot of, I think, voices and thoughts about this for quite a while right for quite a few years and obviously this is like we're looking at the long road um and if only we had this ma- one magic wand uh, that changed things but that doesn't happen because i also think circumstances uh and the msmes and the environment economic or otherwise also change uh, year on year or you know a couple of years so we're looking at such a very uh, a lot of moving parts so i think there's a lot more to you know, thoughts that have to go into it. That's absolutely wonderful. Um, But there is another thing during, say, it has been there for quite a while, but I think COVID sort of uh, put the focus on a few. Uh, One is, of course, the woman that we were talking about, but also the gig economy, right? So uh, from a present day context, you know, gig economy has grown quite exponentially And it has grown, uh, maybe it was in the background, but I think it really was brought to the foreground, uh, you know, during these two years. So, you know, but one thing that I'm also thinking is what are we really missing in the conversation, right? Like, you know, lifestyle requirements, labor laws, new ideas of how quickly you can deliver comes in. And then there are this cacophony of voices saying that this works, this doesn't work. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Very broad question, I have <laughs> instinct on many of these things is to ask, uh, there are several parts to it. One is a society kind of challenge. What kind of society do you want to build based on voluntary consensual interactions between the right? Um, It's not clear to me, I, I don't have a clear answer on the economy being right or wrong. I take advantage of it every single day. In some ways, I am able to function the way I am because of, of
0: that,
1: that absolutely. Coming from there, right? That being said, um uh, it also irks me that some of the things that we have done before were uh, losing it as a society. Eh? For example, the ability to buy vegetables, to be able to suss out uh, different bodies, right? It's a very silly thing. Right? But the gig economy, not just the gig economy, but this uh, at home uh, convenience-based story does alter those kinds of things as a society. Right. Now, that's the bug. Now voluntarily, I'm welcome to say no. I'm still going to go to the mandi and suss out my volumes and build my relationships with uh, all of my local vendors and learn how to do these things. That's the voluntarism part, and I will poo poo and you know sort of uh, put my nose up at all of those who choose not to do that. Right? That's when it comes to law and regulation. i have a very much more conservative, approach, I think in general. Uh, We should not interfere with the voluntary consent actions of individuals because there are signals that are going on that we do not even understand. And it is not possible for one government to be able to evaluate those mirror signals uh, that are being used. We should be very careful whenever we want to exercise coercion on individuals, right? And all law and uh, regulation is coercion. It is fundamentally saying that you can or not do these Correct. things, a big brother will do X, Y, Z, right? Uh, um, irrespective of how uh, closely it is tied to your personal life, right? So you may think I want X to happen for all the economy workers, but you should not use the or You should be very reluctant to wield the coercive of power of state to achieve that game, right? Uh, at least that's my founding that I wired uh, my POV. Right. Um, on the, what do you do with the DVP? I'll take one example, right? The 10 minute delivery story. But so, is that a good idea? Is that a bad idea? I mean, like You and I also talked about it.
0: Yes. Yes, the 10 minute delivery. Yeah.
1: yeah. And now there is a lot of furor over ban it, don't ban it, you know, sort of uh, what is going on, the government needs to step in its own. And my sense is, again, we should be very careful before we ask for government to step. Because one is we don't even know what this is. This is so new. This is so full story. In my view it has not even emerged. Second is uh, let's try and also think through what is the problems that it is helping address the different individuals and We may not even be able to identify all of these markets a much better job of being able to anticipate needs and then respond to those needs. Right. right. Definitely we have also got to think through what is the problem that is bothering us. Right? And what is it that is we want we think needs to be solved? Mm-hmm. And I can see one specific thing uh, that 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 is a problem to be solved, which is really the question of go safety.
0: Correct. If people safety. are
1: zipping around so quickly, they are more likely than not to hurt themselves in some of these now. This hurt themselves part of it, the risk of sounding horribly cool. Uh, if you have opted into it, then I'm less, slightly less worried about it than I am about the hurting someone else. This right. did not part in that choice making. Right? I was walking on the street, someone zipped because there was a, a pressure that came in and hurt me. This is a problem. we got a story. There again, we want to think a little bit more carefully about what's going on here. Why are pedestrians getting hurt?
0: Mm. Why
1: are, uh, uh, you know, sort of vehicles colliding with each other? Uh, what is happening on our road safety store, right? Are signals not working? Do we not have capacity to, be able to monitor rent ports, breaking of speed limits? Ostensibly, there is a breaking of speed, uh, uh, speed you know, sort of uh, traffic means in that sense. Correct different problem than saying ban gig or ban 10 minute deliveries. Right. Okay, you, you want to figure out what's the root cause that you want to solve or what's the problem that you want to solve. And that I'm problem serious. isn't limited to 10 minute deliveries, it is a broader based process. Something is going on with our ability to manage local. Uh, and safety for pedestrians, smaller vehicles, uh, uh, in smaller roads and traffic management. a local government issue. Why are you not able to, what's going on with the local government? History, right? uh, and so, so instead of a nationwide massive uh, cut down on this one symptom that you are able to see, the symptom has only become so exacerbated because there is an underlying story.
0: Absolutely, that, right? because the infrastructure is missing, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but the infrastructure, something is wrong with Absolutely. the uh, local uh, uh, infrastructure management, road management, road safety is, uh, is 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 being carried out. And that certainly requires a careful. How do we solve for it? If you look at that problem, then you will know what needs to happen and those kinds of things. There are several things. Road quality is poor, for example. Why right? his road quality. We don't know how to do public procurement of services. Absolutely. Right. So we don't know how to award contracts. We, there is no transparency around this. Story. We don't even the, the government capability to be able to evaluate contracts so far, so on and so on. There is a problem of uh, uh, staff, you know, sort of just staffing. Uh, the number of ops that you have on the street to be able to police, for example, or use of technology or the conflict between staff and technology, right? So if you think about uh, banks in the, uh, you and I are of that generation. I talked to my young team that they don't have memory of any of these things, right? <laughs> uh, banking in the 80s and the 90s when computerization was going to be introduced, do you remember the conflict between banking staff and computer?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: right? So there's a conflict between technology and current staff. There is also this new emergent uh, 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 sort of demands from the market that, we, that are being solved as we go. So there's all of this stuff that's happening and you want to think very carefully in the and in some sense I think one of the biggest things that you have to remember whether gig economy or other things is that the first in some sense rule of public policy is do no harm. You think you may be able to improve things dramatically from today by doing X or Y, but really you may be harming drastically. The second I think rule is you need to be dispassionate. Mm. At the risk of sounding evil and cruel and so on. You have to be dispassionate. True, true. It is not about the interest of one group and one thing that you are able to see. It's about several moving parts at one group. So that dispassionate element is really critical. I know I've given you a long winded uh, uh, response to how to think about that problem, perhaps.
0: No, no, not at all. And the reason why I gave it in such a large bucket is also to pick your brains on multiple aspects of it. Right. Um, so that makes sense to see, okay, here are the different aspects that we can look at and pick something out of it. Um, so the two ways Bhuvana. One, I can close this meeting and we can join again, thanks to Zoom giving the 45 minute thing, uh, because there's only like six minutes. And then I want to, I mean, if we take more, it just cuts us. So what we can do is, I'll just end this. You join in the same link. Just give me like 10 minutes because it will render and then give it to me. 10-minute break. Yes. No
1: problem. Sounds good.
0: And we'll join exactly the same way right here. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Thanks so much. here is something that I wanted to ask so we've been specifically talking about different topics and I've been picking your brains and giving you as wide a circle uh, as possible but uh, you know generally speaking what are some of the broader lessons you've imbibed in the last few years of working in public policy
1: so many lessons right Um, but big picture I feel there are few headlines that I think are valuable to talk the first is, there is if you know, sort of, it's not clear to everybody what public policy is, right? And oftentimes we only equate it with doing things like, for example, schemes and, uh, you know, sort of government programs and things like that. But it's much broader than that. And there are some foundational elements uh, that, are, that often get sidelined. We think uh, and we confuse. Uh, the, the two foundational, uh, the foundational elements with the programmatic or the intervention elements, right? Uh, and law and regulation are uh, sort of the pillar of public policy in some sense. It's the first thing that you do. And there, I think, again, we have some kind of, uh, there is rampant uh, misunderstanding of what you can and not do with law, right? You can't legislate happiness. You can't legislate a better life. You can't legislate outcomes. You can legislate is uh, you know sort of uh, uh, sort of behaviour and no uh, minimums in some sense, right? Right. Uh, and you want to do this very carefully and very thought, uh, thoughtfully. Uh, so that's one big sort of lesson. The second big lesson is, uh, and this borrows from something I learned a few years ago. I think it was Dr. Richard, but I could Wrong about it, uh, and he says that uh, for a policy to be viable, it's got to be three things: it's got to be technically correct, it's got to be administratively feasible, and it's got to be politically sellable, right? Uh, and it, oftentimes we think of one or the other, but not all three. All three. I, for example, struggle with the politically sellable part, right? So I'm I, I, my brain is not wired that way. Or I haven't learned quite to think that way. And I think that's very, very critical. Um, That being said, uh, particularly for those who are working on public policy from the outside, uh, I think it's really important to emphasize on the technically correct and the administratively feasible part as the first part. Like there's a sequence, right? Right. There are three of them. And then once you've made that choice, then to convert it into what are the ways to be able to politically sell this? So what are the ways to politician proof this and so on? So that we can give our political leaders uh, the ability to make the right decisions, right? Um, so I think that's a, a second big lesson for me people, right? that I thought it be useful to share. The third is that none of this is happening in a vacuum, right? Nobody should listen to me because I'm so good. Right. And the same applies for everybody else. And this is the biggest challenge because every one of us has a sort of pet way of thinking about things, right? And then we get frustrated. But we often forget that uh, there is a democratic process at play, that there are multiple voices and you want to be able to. It's a good thing, it's a feature, not a bug, right? Um, And it's hard and it's frustrating because it will take 10 years for one thing to get done, which may have seemed like a no brainer. That being said, we have to build the muscle to be able to engage with that. Right. Democratic, nice. democratic process fundamentally means that there will be negotiations and there will be a settlement that will be reached. Some of it we will not like, some of it we will uh, enthusiastically we you know sort of uh, take an on it. But we have to learn to engage with that process. Uh, and oftentimes we, uh, in, in India, I find particularly that we have not learned to engage. with particularly in the nonprofit sector, right? Because we're so passionate about some ways of looking at things, some solutions or answers or whatever it is that that we want it all done right this minute. But there is a whole process that plays out at the back and you have to learn to engage with that process, right? And that means cultivating empathy because different people are going to look at the same problem through a different lens. Um, and it means listening. It means that learning to discuss politely and differ politely, and butt heads, but butt heads about the issue, not about people, not about uh, you know sort of politics and so on. Right? I think that's so important. And the last, uh, I think, big lesson uh, uh, for me is that uh, not so much lesson, but uh, submission, if you will. Uh, everything that the state does is coercion and we have to wield that I've said that before in the podcast we have to wield it with great humility and with great trepidation because when it goes wrong it goes horribly horribly wrong and it goes goes wrong more often than it goes right I think that's the second part that we tend to forget right so you're uh, uh, and related to that is the more you the the coercion can also be exercised at different levels right that your coercion can be uh, uh, like exercised at the level of local government can be exercised at a you know sort of semi or a coalition of local governments right. or at the national level and the higher you go the more you should be nervous about exercising <laughs> right because it's about coercion on 1.4 billion people which you should be very very scared about because so I think it's not about centralization, it's about subsidiarity. And that subsidiarity principle uh, embedding it in everything that we do on public policy, I think is very, very critical. It's very hard to do within the confines of the constitution, within the confines of the democratic process, within the uh, uh, back and forth and the you know sort of different things that people are trying to solve for. It's very hard. It's not trivial. That being said, I think it's also, uh, we should make it a non-negotiable.
0: Um, so I think that's my four big submissions to you. Fantastic, fantastic! It really, really is important to um, you know have more conversations. I think conversations um, yes. and discussions, rather than you know arguments or putting only one uh, person as you know speaking their mind, there are just so many uh, different facets that we never look at or we never hear about only because. You know it, it requires multiple uh, points of view so and each one's experience colors how they would like to approach a particular topic exactly. or an issue so and some ways Nidala,
1: everybody is trying to uh, you know sort of optimize their life and everybody is playing against their own constraints and often more often than not we agree on the ends that we want right you know, just all the names and now there is where you negotiate for. so sort of I I feel like giving people uh, the chance uh, their diagnosis may not be entirely correct but what they're telling you in terms of symptoms also help you learn right
0: absolutely and that's how you build
1: uh, the, the right set of answers if you
0: and, and really, that that was wonderful. But thank you for patiently sitting through so many questions and, you know, things that are thrown at you uh, because I think discussions and dialogues are very important in the sense conversations are very important. Uh, but, uh, you know, the more you talk to people, it's amazing how much you actually realize how much, how less, you know. So, um, and, and the question that, you know, you become a little more tolerant of other people's views because you start hearing different uh, viewpoints, instead of hearing your own or a set of, um, you know, viewpoints that you're used to, it, it makes you open to listen to other people, perhaps you might not accept what they're saying, that is completely on you. But uh, you know, the fact that you're not willing to listen uh, to what they're saying makes a huge difference. So I cannot thank you. I seriously cannot thank you enough to having joined us today. Uh, you are a busy woman, but I, I know this is critical for us as we would like to, you know, interact with you and learn more. So thank you so much, Bhuvana.
1: Thank you, Nikola. And I hope we can talk
0: again soon. <laughs> absolutely. I think so too. I think crazy lives, but uh, we need to make time for it. So absolutely.
1: next time you're in Delhi, let's catch up. Person.
0: I think I will be in Delhi very soon. So I am going to most probably pull you in. So thank That's you. Thank, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Bye.